My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. When I was coming up in music, learning to listen deeper and wider, working in a record store, I leaned heavily on the recommendations of Arthur Magazine. Arthur was a free paper available in hipper locations, and it was a window for me into the world of freak folk, which served as an on-ramp to broader understandings of roots-inspired psychedelic music, vernacular weirdness, and all sorts of psychedelic creativity. One name that all the artists in Arthur, people like Joanna Newsom and Devendra Banhart and Vetiver were constantly espousing was Vashti Bunyan. Vashti's 1970 Joe Boyd produced album Just Another Diamond Day was in its own way kind of a contemporary release alongside their new material. It was barely heard upon its original release but was rediscovered as the freak folk genre took shape. Records like Just Another Diamond Day and other scarcely appreciated folk oddities helped to fuel the sense of authenticity and possibility of the new genre, and the renewed attention inspired Vashti to create two contemporary albums, 2005's Look Aftering and 2014's Heartleap. Recently, Bunyan published her first book, Wayward, Just Another Diamond Life. It charts her youth in the orbit of the Rolling Stones, her musical and mental struggles, and details the horse-drawn cart journey across the countryside that she took with her partner at the time, where the songs of Just Another Diamond Day came into shape. It is a vivid and touching read, sly, understated, and emotionally expansive. Its quiet melancholy and endearing jokes feel a piece with her musical work. She joined me to discuss the book and what it felt like to have her work rediscovered, and why she still hates being called a folk singer. Before we get into it, if you want to support Aquarium Drunkard, here's how you do it. Check out our Patreon. By pledging your support over there, you can assure that the dedicated heads at AD are able to make sure that what's on our turntables makes its way to yours. All right, here's my conversation with Vashti Bunyan. Enjoy. I'll speak with you a little bit more on the other side. Sadness that was in our way 
Vashti, can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. Oh, good. <laughs> Hi. Hello. <laughs> well, I sure enjoyed reading this book. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me about it here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. It's great to hear. I, you know, it was such a beautiful book, Wayward. It was very funny. And it was very vivid, and it had some very uh, melancholy moments in that way that just feels so poignant. And, um, you know, it's just, it's a really tremendous, tremendous work. Thank you. Thank you. You you write in it kind of, you're discussing this incredible journey that you took with your then partner. And I think I want to quote, you to start this conversation. You said, if if anybody had asked me, I wouldn't have known what to say about why you were doing this. Yes. And you said, I would maybe have said, I'm going to learn how to make my own kind of life away from the madness of war and injustice, even if the madness is in me and the war has always been playing out in my head. And I thought, wow, <laughs> what a remarkable and resonant way to put it but you know <laughs> I, I wonder for you if this book was a way of figuring out why you did the things you did it was it was and i started writing it a long time ago in about 96 97 when i first got uh, a computer and a word processor and i, I thought mm, i need to write the story of of my earlier life to tell my children uh, what what their parents did, why they did it, although I never came to that conclusion, um, <laughs> but to try to explain to them a bit about about the way we were and about the way things were in the 60s and to try to explain to them. So I started writing it and I wrote a synopsis and I did some of the drawings that are in the book and I sent it away to various publishers and I got just absolute silence back. Mm. And so I thought, oh, well, that's it. I'm no good as a writer. <laughs> and this was way, way before my my records got out again and the music started again. But then when it did, when I got back into music, I forgot all about the writing. I was writing the story. I started writing songs again. Um, and I got back to it every so often. But it was only during lockdown that a, a friend asked me what I was doing, and I said, oh, well, I'm writing a bit, and that was not true. <laughs> <laughs> Aspirational, maybe. Say, yeah, yeah, I have to say something, and maybe I will start writing or whatever. <laughs> and and uh, 
he, he said, well, I know a publisher who would really love to read what you've written. And that was Lee Braxton of White Rabbit. And I sent him some, some bits and pieces. Uh, and also, I didn't mean to, but I sent one of the drawings with the, with the, the documents that I sent him. And he said, oh, <laughs> that's a good idea. Let's keep the drawings and, uh, and do some more. And, uh, and I thought, well, are you sure? Won't it make that make it look like a children's book or something? He said, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's what I did. And so it was lockdown, really. And uh, to answer your question, did it help me to understand why I'd done what I did? No, nope. <laughs> not really. <laughs> but I did enjoy going back there and trying to make the picture of it, trying to um, not so much make it a story and a document of the 60s and well, a historic document or anything, but just to try and paint a picture, a, a, a word picture of of what it was like then for me and for my partner at the time and for my dog and <laughs> um and and that's what I, I really wanted to do and I hope that I did it well you, you absolutely did you absolutely did and it's interesting you know you started writing it all that time ago and that was obviously before as you mentioned before you had had the kind of remarkable resurgence that began in the early 2000s, which is mm -hmm. which is when I first heard of, of your work, because, you know, previously, as somebody who was younger and starting to listen to, oh, you know, Fairport Convention and Nick Drake and the Incredible String Band and all of this incredible stuff, your record was one of those albums that kind of got passed around and and I was deeply uh drawn to the freak folk scene as it was called you know Devendra Vanhard and Joanna yeah. Newsom all these people who were trumpeting yeah. and championing cha championing that's a hard one for me <laughs> to say apparently but all these people who were who were who were really you know spreading the word of this incredible record you had made but yeah. but you talk about how you had started this book really before that happened. And I imagine mm -hmm. it would have been a very different book, maybe, had there not been that resurgence and that re-embrace on your part of, of, of playing music yes. once again. Oh, I think so. It would have been. And, and yes, when I first wrote it, it, of course, it was just about the journey that I made. Um, and th there wasn't anything about my childhood or what led up to uh, the, the music part of my life. And also, it wouldn't have contained what had happened since. Right. And, and uh, so, yes, it was just purely about about that journey that I, I made, that crazy journey. Yeah. So it would have been very different. Yeah. And, and I wanted to make I wanted to bring the music into it, you know, the music before. The journey and that album <laughs> yeah and, and the music after and i you know i just wanted to put it all in there yeah well i'm so glad that you did the journey that you've we've both alluded to so far in this conversation obviously i'll i'll include some of this in the introduction to the podcast episode but um it really okay. was a remarkable and frankly 
kind of crazy thing to do, right? To hop in a, a wagon with a horse that was significantly older than you believed uh, her to be, Bess, and, and your partner and your dog and pick up another dog along the way, all of this. And uh-huh. and you're doing this. You know, it, it's funny. Just Another Diamond Day is such an incredible record. And I think about how you write about how maybe Joe Boyd, the producer, was capturing his portrait of who he thought you were. And when I was reading about this journey, this sort of um, epic trek that you had done, (laughs) I I found myself thinking, well, no wonder he was taken with the romance of that. What you were doing was, was different in, in that, this back to the land sort of way that like maybe other, maybe other counterculture or hippie folks had been, um, invested in some of those ideas but i mean you really were putting your money where your mouth is in terms of learning how to be self-sufficient and so i wonder Mm -hmm. if if writing about that journey put you back in the headspace of of those days oh yes for sure and i I mean i said it in the book because i think about that journey and it was a journey with a horse a wagon a dog and my partner as you say away from london to the outer reaches of Northern Britain. And it took a year and a half. And a lot of that time was spent in the rain, in the mud, in the snow. In, uh, and you know we had some shelter along the way in the w- worst of the winter, but it was, I mean, now I can think of it, of it as crazy and epic and all of those things. At the time, I thought it was all I could do. Yeah. I had to leave London. I had to leave what I saw was the failure of my musical career and get away from it. And uh, I met Robert Lewis, who had very similar ideas. And between us, we met Donovan, the singer, who had bought some islands off the north of Scotland. And he wanted to people his land and his old ruined cottages with people of like mind. And painters and, and musicians and, and writers. Uh, and he called it uh, uh, the, the West Coast Renaissance. Mm. Took me and Robert a year and a half to get there by the time he'd gone because he was, he, in that year and a half, he'd become hugely successful and was filling stadia in, in America and things like that. So it, it was an extraordinary journey, which I think about pretty much every day. And right now I'm looking out the window in the city, in the rain. <laughs> I'm just always very grateful not to be out there, you know, <laughs> still, even though it's 50 years ago, you know. Yeah. Um, it's still very much a part of me because I learned so much on that journey about, uh, as you say, but how to be self-sufficient. We had no money at all. And uh, we had no support at all. Uh, and so we had to make it up as we went along and, and and do various jobs along the way to get a bit of money. Right. But we'd done so little, you know, and uh, yeah, writing the book made me realize, wow, <laughs> I'm actually <laughs> quite proud of that, that young woman. How on earth, how on earth did they do it? But we did. Well, you talked about how it was, you know, that what it required was you learning to make a life 
you know, on your own. Um, not entirely mm. on your own in this case, but but still no. No. very often on your own. Mm. There, you write really movingly about these various moments. There was one part that really, really um, stuck with me where you talk about an evening where Robert had, had to go off to do some errand or some some journey and you were you were on your own for the night and how oh, yeah. you were deeply terrified and i you know anybody who's ever traveled or or even camped or whatever kind of knows mm-hmm. that maybe that feeling you're talking about where you're by yourself and it is spooky it can be very very spooky but you talk about how yeah. after that night a yes. little bit of that fear had had just gone. It it, it left gone. you because you you yes. you'd been through th- that you I, know and survived. I'd been through the most frightening night of my life, probably. Yeah, Robert had been ill and he'd been taken in by a local doctor. We were in the middle of forestry. Mm-hmm. It was dark, and a police car came by and said. We want you to watch out for a prowler that has been reported in the area. <laughs> and I knew that they were lying. I knew they were just right winding me up. Sure. And and and, and you know, they they they, they you know, the police really didn't like us. So uh, I was terrified, even though I knew that they they weren't telling the truth. But I, you know, in in the wagon with the dogs, who in the dark, my candle didn't last the night, and. The dogs would growl every so often, and yeah. you know, I mean, little noises outside. I was terrified, but by time I got to the morning, I was so proud of myself for not dying, and uh, that yes, as you say, think things. I wasn't so frightened anymore. Yeah, and uh, it, it was. Yeah, it it was it was good. I I just um. I learned something, I guess, not to be such a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind, it's kind of a literal, you know, that we you, you hear about the long, dark night of the soul, you know, and you kind of had a, a, a literal that I'm sure yeah. that, you know, when that phrase was first written down, it was referring to some sort of night like yours where yeah. you're on your own and, and you're scared. You also write, though, kind of. I don't want to spoil the book for for people who haven't read it, but let's just say that when you did reach Donovan's um, commune that he had established, uh, you found that there wasn't necessarily room for you to to, to absorb into that community. Yeah, and I I found I found that part of the book so you do a thing over and over again in the narrative where you will you will sort of tell a uh you'll lay out a fact and then you'll do a little aside where you'll say you know this this took place and somebody said this was going to happen and it did you know these little notes <laughs> and you kind of write about reaching that moment reaching his place and after having taken this long arduous journey um realizing mm-hmm. that that wasn't the place for you after all and you you almost didn't care <laughs> I didn't. I didn't care. I really didn't care. And I remember the feeling. Well, we're okay. You yeah, know, we've done this journey. We we are travelers now. We are people who can live in the world independently, and we don't need Donovan. Donovan. We don't need his houses. We don't need his land. 
there isn't a place for us anyway. There's certainly not a place for the horse. And so we just kept going. And and it was another moment of pride, really, that our, that we had achieved something in ourselves that um, we couldn't have found or, or, or made in ourselves any other way than by doing that journey, by meeting the people we met along the way who who taught us so much yeah. about the old ways, you know. Um, and that was what I really wanted, was to to find out what it was like to live without the internal combustion engine. <laughs> well, well, right. So no? the, the sort of the days that you document before the the journey that you took. You write about yeah. your, your childhood. You write about your early experiences in studios, working with people like Andrew Luke Oldham and and the Stones mm-hmm. and Jimmy Page, these artists, and and a, a kind of what you viewed at the time as as a failed career as a as a pop as a pop singer. You also yeah. write really deeply about your mental health as a young person, and. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me about the book was how after you had made this journey and after you had essentially, you could think of it almost like immersion therapy or something because you you write at the end of this journey that you had learned how to be in the moment. And I think about that an awful lot. And I think uh-huh. about how much of our anxiety culturally is um, rooted in that inability to be in the moment. You're either anxious about what's to come or you're regretful yes. about what happened, you know, in, yes. the, in the past. Yes, and so, exactly. And so I just wonder if at the end of this journey, you know, um, when you did finally get around to recording your own songs, which had been a struggle in the previous mm-hmm. attempt at music because people wanted you to record songs Mick Jagger had written or or whoever. I wonder <laughs> if that sense of being able to be in the moment maybe rooted those songs for you in a way that was different, the songs we hear on Just Another Diamond Day. Yes, for sure. I was in a bad way before I set out on that journey, and I kind of described it in the book. I didn't want to... I didn't want to use present day words for what I was going through. You know, I could have said, oh, well, I was suffering post-traumatic stress or I was really depressed. Or, mm-hmm. I didn't want to use those words because they would not have been my words back then. In 1967, 68, I wouldn't have had any, I wouldn't have had those words. Right. But taking care of the horse and stopping the dog getting run over and dealing with a really difficult partner and needing wood for the fire and what was what was I going to cook on the fire and all of those immediate things that needed to be done it it focused me well even focus is a word i wouldn't have used then it <laughs> made me it made me have to think have to be in the moment and and just do what was necessary, and it took me out of my troubled mind yeah. in a way that I'm really grateful for. And it, it it certainly it gave me back my my senses, I think, in a way 
but that I, I could not have found another way. And I feel very grateful for it because, you know, I, I had been on prescription drugs. I had been on, all, I had really been through it. And yeah. to get rid of all of that and just to be and walk, <laughs> yeah, whether it was raining or not, uh, but walk with the horse was incredibly good for me and, well, for both of us, really. And it meant that I could keep my dog yeah, because I'd grown out of home because he was well, because my dog was not popular with my father. <laughs> <laughs> this this was the dog uh, Blue, right? Blue, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I have to say another thing that really has uh, – that really stuck with me about the book was you write just so passionately and intimately about your connection with animals, with – with your dogs, mm -hmm. with um, you you yeah. you pick up another dog that you name Magog, which I Magog. I love the uh, apocalyptic connotations there, um, <laughs> Gog and Magog. But I loved yeah. I I loved that, and 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 you write about Bess, and you write. I mean, Bess is really, I think the 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 hero of the book. Um, oh, sure, and Absolutely. just and just so so. The connection that you have with that animal to the point that you you tell a story that really, really got me, kind of caused me to choke up, which is when you ask Bess if you're ever going to be a mother and she nods three times. And then, of course, you have three children have later. Children. It was so such a moment, you know, such a peaceful, lovely moment. And I used to talk to her. Um and I, yeah, she was grazing the verge, and you know, it was a lovely sunny day, and she was warm, and the sun was on her back, and she's black, and so you know, she was really warm, and it was great. And I just said, you know, do you think I'll ever have children? And she stopped her grazing, and she lifted her head, and she nodded three times, oh. and then went to grazing. And you know, that kind, you know, it could have been. Just that, you know, she, oh, that was a nice taste. I'll maybe go and get something <laughs> there. But, you know, for me, it was, it, it, it really kept me going, you know. Yeah. And uh, yes, I did have three children. I do have three children. You, you do, <laughs> yes. You know, something that I really liked was that it almost feels like a, I'm a big fan of, um, the X-Files, the American science fiction show. I don't know if you've sure. ever watched it. But sure, yeah. There were times that um that your relationship with Robert almost reminded me of Mulder and Scully, right? Because he right. was he was maybe given over to um flights of fancy and or <laughs> magical uh thinking at one point he picks up an yeah. I Ching and 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 that scares the hell out of you and of course other times yeah. there's sort of all the fairy lore that is associated with the part of the world you're traveling in. And he was drawn to all of that. And you, oh, yeah. maybe a little bit less so, maybe a little more uh, focused on the lentils and the potatoes, you know, the real, the yes. real stuff. Now, now that said, that said, this moment with you and Bess feels mystical in a way. And I have to imagine that you were also, you had these moments of profound spiritual you know experience on this journey as well yeah and and uh, as well as that i i wouldn't have thought of it as a spiritual experience i would have just thought of it as 
oh, oh, well, okay, well, she's probably right, but, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought that it was anything out of the ordinary because of the way that we were, the way we had become on that journey, all, everything was open, everything was open to us, everything was possible, and all kinds of amazing things happened. And I haven't put anything like all of it into the book, but it, I didn't think I needed to. I thought I just needed a few really, really important to me bits mm. um, and uh, bits of the story. And certainly that part with, with Bess. At the time, I wouldn't have thought anything much of it. I just thought, oh, well, she knows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? um, and I wouldn't have thought of it in a mystical way or a spiritual way. It was just that that was what we were like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we didn't try to make anybody else feel that way. It was very, we were very much in our own bubble. And uh, I, I don't think, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't try to persuade anybody else to do what we would. <laughs> I think you would have had a hard time maybe doing so. <laughs> we would have had a hard time. <laughs> I, um, so, yeah. You encounter obviously a lot of people along the way. Um, some, yeah some strangers who are very kind to you and take you in and mm -hmm. let you stay the evening or cook you a meal or whatever. But you also encounter a lot of folks who are more along the lines of those police officers we referred to who were not yes. a big fan of what you were doing. And yeah. I, I found it interesting that very often the people who were shooing you along or telling you to hit the road were people associated with uh, the church, you know, respectable yeah. Christian types. Respectable, yes, certainly as we got further and further into into Scotland, um, but in England as well. Uh, it was it was because we were thought to be Romani travellers, or the worst word, tinks, mm. and that we would steal children, that we would steal chickens, that we would... Be, we would be thieves. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so they didn't want us anywhere near their villages and they would phone the police and get them to move us on. If we'd stopped to rest the horse or anything, the police would come by and they would be really abusive. Yeah. And then when they heard our voices and realized that we weren't travelers, that we weren't Romani, we weren't gypsies, they changed completely. Yeah. And that was a big education for me, that 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 is the way people are treated, and still are, certainly in in this country, it's still the same, and uh, it just made me realise, you know, that this is what happens to people. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, and being aware of it, we had to be really, really careful, you know, and um. And not raise suspicions wherever we went and just keep going, keep going, keep going. Yeah. Um, I think it, I think so much about how because you, you talk about that, the the Romani travelers and how there was this um suspicion and this innate sort of distrust of of strangers. And mm -hmm. I couldn't help but think, you know, I think it's happening all over the world, certainly these yeah. days in the U.S., there are 
a lot of unhoused people, people who are living in conditions that would be similar to what you and and Robert were yeah. doing in those days, sort of living well, off the land, certainly living off the grid. And, yes. and I think about the fear and the distrust that these people encounter on a daily, probably multiple times a day, you know, this sort of thing. And and I just, I guess reading your book made me think uh, about that, the lives of traveling people in a a way that, that feels more rooted in I mean, I feel like you bring a lot of empathy to the book by by writing about your experiences. It helps to illustrate mm-hmm. what that experience might be like for for anybody. And so, when you write about these nights of um, of of discomfort, or you know, uh, a couple days in the rain where you're just soggy and you're feeling terrible, how yeah. often those moments of kindness would just oh, be miraculous just a- feeling really miraculous and 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 a traveler family that we we came across who who helped us hugely they were so generous towards us they knew nothing about us yeah uh, well actually they did because the the communication between traveler families was much better than it was with the police so they <laughs> did know about us they did know that 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 yeah these peculiar people who were traveling with an old bread van and a horse but they were so generous towards us and a lot of people that we met like that who you know that the, the the settled people would be so abusive to them and so so unkind to them and yet the traveling people were amazing to us right and and, and you know that they didn't need to be but they were, and I'll I'll be forever grateful to them. Yeah, and they were so funny sometimes that the stories they could tell, you know, uh, self-deprecating stories that they would tell, um, and I didn't feel that much bitterness from them, which that you know I I I would have expected them to be angry and fearful, but no. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. I want to I want to ask a little bit about your that those early days in in the pop music ecosystem where you found yourself in a studio with with Andrew Luke Oldham who essentially your I believe your singer, your, your single, some things just stick in your mind. I mean, I believe that's that's a very affecting recording. It's really great. 
you uh-huh. you know at the time though it wasn't the most fulfilling thing for you to be a part of i wonder if in the years since you hear it differently now than you did in in those days oh definitely definitely i think because i i was writing my own songs and i desperately wanted to get my own songs recorded so when andrew gave me a stone song to record i was outraged i don't know i don't want to do that (laughs) but the experience was incredible to be amongst all those musicians and to be in that world you know if if that single had worked i would have felt very differently about it of course but it didn't work and it had my own song on the b-side which andrew has since said you know he thinks that was probably the better song i thought it was the better song of course <laughs> but, <laughs> but actually i love the stone song now and and, and the the actual story of the song is is so it's so perfect for now as well yeah. you know why must there be so much hate in their lives some things just stick in their minds and it's a, it's a fantastic little song and i love it now yeah then well because it didn't work i went back to simplicity and just guitar and double bass and and cello and um and that didn't work either so yeah (laughs) i ran away with a horse (laughs) Uh, well you you describe these formative scenes of of seeing cliff richards in the shadows and and i i've had um i've had richard thompson on this podcast as well obviously a great artist and tremendous singer and he talked yeah. about Cliff Richards too being just this like this figure of of possibility and excitement you know so you 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 talk about seeing him and then you talk about purchasing the freewheeling Bob Dylan that record and I wondered if you could just tell me what you know there's this sense of I I pick up on a sense of excitement and possibility of this moment where this art is coming out that is broken from certain traditions and certain um, mm-hmm. staid ways of thinking. All of a sudden, there seems to be an alternate path. And I just wonder what that felt like to you culturally in that moment to be a young woman with this potential new world. You know, how what did those what did those records and what did that art mean to you? Well, for Cliff Richard, I was only, you know, 13, 14, 15. Yeah. Um, and it's because when I was uh, starting to write this book again, uh, when my daughter said, don't you dare mention Cliff Richard. <laughs> why, why didn't, why not? Because he became such, you know, for her generation, he's just so uncool. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, as a 13, 14-year-old, he was... He was what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be. I wanted to be in that world, and and I and that was my my ambition. Really, was to be a pop singer. That's what I wanted to be. And then when I did find the freewheeling Bob Dylan, it changed me so much to actually be listening to somebody singing about injustice, to mm-hmm. be singing about a world I knew nothing about. I'd had such a sheltered upbringing. To find that in song form really changed changed me and educated me and uh, took me way away from, <laughs> from the established traditional pop 
song pop music yeah. industry that I had, you know, I, I had kind of grown up in it in a way. Um, but finding that album, it wasn't that I wanted to be Bob Dylan. It was, but I did want to just be a singer with a guitar. Yeah, yeah, and um, and and be moving around and not be stuck. That was that was really what I what I got out of that album. Yeah, and when I I had been in New York uh, looking after my sister's kids, but when I got back to London, slung my guitar over my shoulder and tried to find somebody to listen to me and to to take on my songs, and then I met Andrew Lou Golden who semi took on my songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh- I loved I loved that in the book um you you reconnect with Andrew many many years after that time and and yes. and the two of you are able to have the kinds of discussions uh about what you wanted from art and what you you know what you wanted yeah. to accomplish in those days and didn't but but nonetheless it felt to me like a beautiful um a beautiful coda to that that it didn't similar yeah. with with Robert Kirby whose arrangements you were you were nervous about or even maybe slightly offended by and then later you yeah, have on, this on Diamond Day on yes. Diamond Day um, later yes just a few years later um, when you when you do cut that yeah. record with Joe Boyd you were you know you had these incredible players but at the same time that wasn't what you envisioned for your music it wasn't. Well, the Robert Kirby ones, the Robert Kirby arrangements were what I envisaged. Mm. There was only just one little verse to where he changed the chord sequence. Yeah. But I said, I don't want that. And I, was, <laughs> I, I spent the next 30 years um, worrying about having upset him. But the other musicians on the album, the, uh, Robin Williamson from the Incredible String Band and Dave Swarbrick and Simon Nichol from Fairport Convention, I'd been on the road. I'd been away from music. I had, right. I had no idea who they were. And so when Joe brought them in with, with banjos and mandolin and, and, and fiddle, um, I didn't have... I didn't have what I should have had and needed to have the guts to say, look, Joe, I yeah. don't want these songs to sound this way. But I've said it before that back then the producer was God, yeah. absolute God. And you didn't say, um, no, I don't want to banjo on this song. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's how it had been and, and set up. But I loved what Robert Kirby did. And in fact, when I met him again, 30 years or so later. Um, and I apologized to him. I said, I'm really sorry the way I treated you, the way I was so rude to you about that little change. And he, don't worry about that. Yeah. You know? and, <laughs> and then he said, you know, we're the survivors. And uh, I could really see that it meant a lot to him. And uh, That is a beautiful, beautiful moment. It, it was a beautiful moment. It was a beautiful moment. And... Um, we were going to work together on my songs after that, but he died, mm-hmm. and that was that was that was a terrible blow because he was a lovely guy. He yeah. was really funny. He's irreverent, just great guy. But yeah, I, I I did love what he did for Diamond Day. I didn't particularly love the rest of it, but I have come around to it. I understand why Joe did it. Yeah. 
he has apologized since for uh, thinking that, you know, because of the way I lived uh, with a horse and a dog and a boyfriend and a wagon in a field, um, that I was the most pokey person he could have possibly imagined. Yeah. And that that's what he thought we were, you know. Well, I, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up because one of the most interesting things about you is that you have never been particularly interested in being thought of as a folk singer. Folk is not necessarily the word you would use to describe yourself. And one of my favorite parts of the book, and it helped as I was writing questions for this interview, is you said, I don't know what I would describe myself as, <laughs> which was helpful because I thought, okay, I'm not going to ask her. Well, then what should we, what kind of singer should we call you? <laughs> what am I? Well, that's right. It was Howard, actually, Howard Wolfing, ages ago when he was um, working with me when I was touring in, in America. And he, he said, and I was, you know, I've always been furious about being called a folk singer. And he said, well, what do you expect? You sit there with a the guitar. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Well. It's, it's true. Well, and yeah, I know. But, you know, I still get really riled up when I'm called a folk singer. Um, Howard has started to call me an alternative folk singer. <laughs> well, yeah. And you you also, um, as I mentioned, you know, when I become familiar with your your music, it's associated yeah. with what was called the freak folk scene. And for some reason, I don't mind that. You so don't much. mind that so much? Okay, that's good. So with a little qualifier, yeah. uh, it maybe is a little more palatable yeah. to you. I wondered, yeah. you know. A little bit, yeah. You know, it's funny when you when you have this reemergence, when your record is reissued in 2000 and all of a sudden, people like Joanna Newsom and Stephen Malkmus and Animal Collective mm. and, and Fortet, you know, all of a sudden, yeah. these people are, you know, becoming collaborators with you and 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 extolling the virtues of your music. People like Devendra Banhart, the uh, the mm. great lyrical, imaginal, yeah. like uh, the, every time I talk with that guy, I feel like my head grows a few inches you know in terms of just like <laughs> cosmic expansion what a what a what a true you know hero but i wondered if you when you're around these people who are decades younger than you and 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 had discovered a record that you'd made a long time ago at that point yeah did you feel a kind of kinship with them did you almost feel like yeah. well gosh if these kinds of people had been around maybe things would have oh. been different back then if only, if only. And it was extraordinary for me when, when Diamond Day came out again in 2000, as you say. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting uh, anything much. I thought, you know, it's going to be the same as last time. It'll be dismissed as nursery rhymes for kids and, and all the stuff that didn't happen and did happen when it first came out. And then when it had this incredible response, um. Uh, these are people who are the ages I was when I was making this album. Yeah, they understand it all these decades later, much more than my contemporaries ever did. Sure, um, 
that was the most wonderful feeling for me. And yes, when I was working with them, the, the years didn't seem to matter at all. It was like, and I just thought, my goodness, if only they'd been around back then, things would have been very different because there was understanding and respect and communication between us all. And I, I just loved them. Yeah. And it, uh, it, it seemed in some of the uh, publicity um, over over the, the next few years after it came out, that, you know, it was said that Joanna Newsom was influenced by Diamond Day. She wasn't. She hadn't heard it before mm. she made Guide Mender. But what she and Devendra did for me was to make a place for me. That you know, it wasn't that I influenced them. They made a place for me to be with them, and that made such a difference to me. Uh, it made it you know for making me feel better about what I've yeah, done yeah. and that it hadn't been just wasted and completely forgotten, that that they understood it was extraordinary for me. I think that something that's so fascinating is the way that that sometimes it takes – I think I believe the idea that, that music will eventually reach the people that it – is is meant to that songs no matter how long it takes and it's not always according to our timetable when something is heard <laughs> yeah. or appreciated but yeah. i i do believe that as long as somehow it can stay out there in the world that eventually art finds the people who were meant to to find it and to hear you talk about these artists who were so much younger than you making place for you and not thinking of you as a past tense artist, not somebody who had made records, but yet somebody who was going to make records with Vetiver yes. and, and, you know, the records that yes. you've since made. To me, yeah. that's really beautiful. I, I love the, I love the Avalanches song that samples you. And yeah, that's yeah, great, isn't it? <laughs> and to me, that's a perfect sort of encapsulation about what we're talking about, where in this moment, this record that you made long ago feels like it was it just it just feels like it's part of this continuum and a song like that avalanche's track it just kind uh -huh. of condenses all the years and it all feels like it's sort of honestly in the moment the way you were talking about that that feeling you know yeah yeah oh that's so good yeah, it's so good to hear that, and, and yeah, really bowled me over that a song that I wrote and recorded, you know, fifty something years ago, is in this music now. Yeah, yeah. How how did that happen? But it's just so great that it happened, and I'm so lucky that uh, that it was found, you know, that, or, or and that that somebody felt that they could they could take those lines and 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 make them into something else. It's just great. Yeah, really. You, how fortunate I feel. You talked about <laughs> how when the record was going to be reissued in two thousand, you were you had maybe some suspicion that it was going to meet the same fate, that it wasn't going to be appreciated, and that once again you were going to have yeah. to sort of suffer that injury. And I and I I wonder, you know, were you nervous in that moment, or had those years brought something else to it. Were, I mean, how how did you, how did you feel? Was there nervousness? 
huge nervousness. Yeah. I, I, I really thought, you know, why on earth have I done this to myself? Why am I doing this to myself again? Yeah. <laughs> when I had vowed I would never go anywhere near music again. And now this thing is going to go out there and people are going to hear it. And because of the internet, it will, people will write about it and I'll hear, see what they say. And oh my goodness, what have I done? What have I done? So it was incredible when I read positive reviews and, and, and lovely things said about it that I would have ached to have said about it back in its day. Um, and it just never happened. So it was an extraordinary disjointed feeling, you know, that, that, that uh, I could, I still find it quite hard to believe. You know, if I hear a snippet of it anywhere, I think, uh, <laughs> why has somebody got that on? And I think, oh, yeah, that was, that's mine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now I can, I couldn't, I can admit that it's mine. I don't have to feel. Because I never let my children hear it. It was, you know, I was forbidden. I, I couldn't have anybody know about it at all. And then suddenly it's out there. Yeah. And people are being, people are being nice about it. <laughs> well, well, people hear it on a T-Mobile commercial, obviously, which was a, a huge, huge... Uh, I actually want to touch on that in a in a second, but before we touch on that, I did want to mention you mentioned that you didn't allow your children to hear it, but they heard it anyway. They figured it out on their own, right? You said they would sneak they found a tape and they would sneak out to the car to listen. Oh, yes, because we didn't have a player in the house, but we did have one in the car, and they found this old dusty tape in in a, a, a taped copy that somebody had given me because I did I didn't have. The, the the vinyl I'd given them all away years ago, but somebody had made a tape of his, of his version, and I know I put it in a drawer, and it just yeah. got dusty. They found it, and they took it out to play it in the car secretly. How did you and feel when you found that out? I didn't find it out until after the album came out again. Okay. <laughs> but when when my daughter said, you know, well, we used we, you know, we, we did used to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. I mean, it is beautiful. Yeah. It's it is a you you also write about how you would hear from people over the years, especially since it's reemerged and since you've you know begun to to be able to to share more of, of of your art but you talked about how you would hear people would say they would play it for children to calm them and to to yes. ease their minds and how those songs written on that journey uh were doing that for you as well for me exactly because I, when i was writing them and they were coming to me I wasn't ever thinking of recording them. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't in my head at all. And so I was writing them to keep us going, to keep, to keep the dream going, to keep the ambition going. Yeah. That we were we were going to get there one day. Um, and these songs, a, a lot of them are quite rocky and and uh, you know like the wagon would sway, yeah. and and I think that that was comforting to me, and I think that that comes across. For, for children, I've heard so many people say that it puts their babies to in, into a calm state where they can sleep. And the, the, the best story that came back to me was somebody who had an autistic boy who was nonverbal, 
but he would listen to Diamond Day and he would sing along with it and he knew all the words. Yeah. And that one just absolutely, absolutely got me. Well, just so, so beautiful to think about. So beautiful to think about the way music communicates yes. beyond beyond even our, our, our language. Um, yes. I, I, I alluded to that T-Mobile commercial, which is how a lot of people found your work. And, and that brought to mind for me, you know, commercials and 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 that sort of thing understandably uh the tension that exists between commerce and art is something that i think is always worth thinking about and yet it's impossible to deny that a commercial <laughs> is going to have so many more people hearing your music than Ever, yeah. you know, than being played on the radio, than being reviewed yeah. in whatever wonderful magazine says beautiful things. And it brought to mind to me that around the time that I am describing first hearing your music, of course, there was that Volkswagen commercial with the Nick Drake song, Pink Moon. Pink Moon, yes. A song that the moment I, I don't I don't care about Volkswagen. I don't own a, a Volkswagen bug or anything like that. But I remember seeing that commercial and hearing that song. And where I was growing up in rural Arizona, there were no radio stations playing Nick Drake songs. There were no uh, copies of that record hanging out in my uncle's record collection. So how would I have known it? Hearing it, though, it was like a, a clarion call. It was like I had always wanted to hear that song. And so right. I was... Uh, thrilled to learn that you had attempted to work with Nick Drake, oh, but yes. it didn't quite work out. I wonder if you could tell me what the experience was like. <laughs> well, yeah, um, yeah. After after I'd made Diamond Day and after it came out, and I had a baby, a couple of months old, I was in London, and uh, Joe Boyd sent me to Nick Drake's house. Mm to try to write a song together. Why he thought that either of us would be able to do that, I do not know, because neither of us knew the other person's music. <laughs> we were both completely uncommunicative. I, I mean, I was very, very shy always. I never spoke to anybody if I could help it, and neither did he. And we had met a couple of times in Joe's office, but never spoke. Mm -hmm. And then there we were, he was at a, a piano, a big old upright piano. I was on the sofa with my baby and my guitar, and every time I picked up my guitar, the baby would cry, so I'd have to put the guitar down. <laughs> and uh, Nick had his back to me, and I just remember this image of his shoulders going higher and higher and higher, <laughs> and the baby cried. Uh, oh, this is not going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how Joe thought it would, I, I don't know. Well, he knows now that it was a crazy idea. But yeah, you know, how, what on earth would, would we have been able to do with his, his back to me and him tinkering away on the piano and me trying to pick up my guitar? I mean, yeah. even if I had been able to, what would have happened? I just, you know, I can't imagine that we would have been able to write something together. He was so 
individual. Oh, certainly. And I was so individual. And I'm, uh, you know, I, I have never written anything with anyone. And and so, well, I have, but not, not in that kind of collaborative way that Joe had in mind. Yeah. So, well, one of my favorite things about Joe Boyd as a, as a figure of great renown in my personal record collection, I have a lot of Joe Boyd productions and I, uh, right. and I am a, a big fan. I think his imagination and his, and his, his curiosity as to what could happen is, uh, is yeah. beautiful. And so yeah. in my head, um, maybe I can imagine the song you and Nick would have written, but who knows? Uh, and, oh. <laughs> and it's, and it's, and it's great. I'm glad he yeah. had you try regardless, but, but, yeah. but I, but I do think that like, Part of what makes Diamond Day such an incredible record and 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 look aftering, which I liked the alternate title that you had suggested, Dead Pets. I actually think maybe it would have been I would if I had been in the room with you, I would have said, you know, there is something to that. It's it's kind of beautiful. But um but look yeah, aftering is <laughs> look yeah. aftering is another great title. It's also very good and probably is the better title, you know. But um but mm-hmm. But there is a singular quality to your work, and I and I and I wanted to ask you, you know, you you had never really learned music theory, and you hadn't dedicated yourself to um, figuring out chords or or playing the piano. I think you say you, yeah. never more than one handed, you know. And I wonder yeah. if you think that that um that sort of state of of uncertainty or unknowing is a part of what draws you to music. And if, if it is a part of, of, of how you write songs in your own singular way. Absolutely. I, I think that um, it's, for me, it's an advantage to know absolutely nothing about music at all. Uh, that I just I just like what, what I like and I like what I hear. And uh, I the only disadvantage is if I'm working with another musician and I don't know the name of the chord. Yeah. I don't know how to describe what I mean. And I said, no, it's not that, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but but no, I've never learned. Um, and, and when I was recording the keyboard for, for Look Aftering and and um, well, no, not for the crafting for Hartley, the next one. Yeah, I, I was uh, recording one hand at a time, yeah, and uh, uh, just tracking uh, one hand at a time, and then a third hand as well. And I thought, well, nobody's ever going to be able to play that. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to worry about it, though. You've recorded it; it's all there. <laughs> well, you you talk yeah. you talked about how there was a lot of. Um, you had at one point earlier, before um, all of this great rediscovery of your work, you had vowed not to enter a recording studio again. Um, yeah. In addition to the the printed version of this book, um, your your audio book for Wayward is very very wonderful. You do an incredible job reading it. The sound of your voice is similar to the way it works on your records. Um, 
so comforting and so inviting and so engrossing. So I wondered mm -hmm. if to close this conversation, I mean, did you sort of enjoy the process of reading it? Uh, what was the process of recording the audiobook like for you? I think I've never been so terrified. Well, yes, of course I have. But it was <laughs> terrifying. It was terrifying yeah. to think, oh, I've got to do this right. And and then they said, well, we could get somebody else to do it. We could get an actor to do it. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing more terrifying than doing it yourself was somebody else doing it. <laughs> They're bound to do it wrong. No, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, actually, well, it took three days, and the first day I, I was much more, t more tense, but it, I sort of relaxed into it as it went, and I, I did actually quite enjoy enjoy reading it out. Um, and it, yeah, I haven't dared listen to it at all. Uh, but I, I was at a, a, a festival the other day in in Wales, a lovely literary festival and I was being interviewed by somebody that I hadn't met before and she said I listened to your audio book and I really loved it and she was the first person who'd said that to me so that made the whole weekend so much better and you saying it just now uh, that's really great for me thank you I might just one day have the bravery to <laughs> to listen to it because I just haven't well if, um, if you do I think you will find as I did that it's remarkably affecting and beautifully performed you know I know that reading is a, it's different than performing you know sort of um on stage but nonetheless there is a uh, there is a performative quality there has to be in order yeah. for it to come across and and you really yeah. you really nail that middle ground between pure naturalism and and the kind of um impassioned and 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 funny reading and so anyway you just you really it's a great book it's a great book to listen to it's a great book to read and it's been a real Deep pleasure speaking with you about it, Vashti. Thank wow. you for taking the time. Thank you so much. And you've been so kind about the book and about all of it. That, that's really, really lovely. Thank you very much. Well, it was an, it was, it's an absolute pleasure. And uh, I'm so thankful for your records and so thankful for this book. And, and so I hope you have a great rest of your, your day. And, and thank you. We'll, we'll speak again sometime, I hope. I hope so. That would be really nice. All right. Really okay. Thank you. Be well, Vashti. You too. Bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. If you dug this episode, I want to recommend checking out my friend and collaborator Mark Master's music book podcast. He did a fantastic talk with Vashti recently as well. Check that out alongside a bunch of his other great conversations. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce this show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Our music comes from Frank Mastin, drawn from his incredible discography of gorgeous library music. Find more by visiting mastin.bandcamp.com. Our executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard founder Justin Gage. Don't miss his radio show, The Aquarium Drunkard Show on Sirius XMU, Channel 35 at 7 p.m. Pacific Time each and every Wednesday. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. 
Next week on the show, occult poet Jonica Stuckey joins us to discuss his work with Third Man Records, Nirat, Magical Incantations, and more. Hang loose until then, and check out the Patreon this weekend for a cool bonus chat. We'll be back more soon. Until then, take it easy. This transmission is concluded. 